Welcome to the first PPA Scotland Magazine Stories podcast. I am Laura Kelly Dunlop and I'm a journalist and the business manager of PPA Scotland. We are the network for professional publishers and the people behind the Edinburgh International Magazine Festival and the PPA Scottish Magazine Awards. For Magazine Stories, we interview some of the most interesting people working in our industry for insights on their career, how they got to where they are today and what they've learned along the way. Appropriately for our first podcast edition, we are joined today by a leading force in the pivot to audio. As DC Thompson's head of podcasts, Christopher Finn shapes their commercial and editorial strategy for podcasting across their newspapers, magazine and radio station brands. This episode was recorded before the coronavirus outbreak happened, so we won't be talking about it in the main body of the interview, but stick around and we will be talking to Chris at the very end about how the pandemic has affected how he works with his staff and also whether it is affecting how we are listening to podcasts. So hi, Chris. Thanks for joining us today. You're very welcome. Well, thanks for joining me because you're at DCT HQ. I am indeed. In sunny Dindy, literally sunny Dindy. Yes, I've left heel and uh, really, really cold weather in Glasgow to come to beautiful Dundee uh, to visit you today, which is very nice. Did you have a favourite magazine whenever you were a, a kid? Was it when you, when Absolutely. you go back that far? I, I mean, it will, <laughs> it's an incredibly geeky thing to talk about, but my favourite magazine was a magazine called... Um, PCW Plus, which was a future magazine about the Amstrad PCW computer. Uh, I adored that magazine. I was very interested in it. And in fact, I found just you know, the day before yesterday, I found how much I adored that magazine because uh, in a little folder, I had not only a copy of the 100th edition of the magazine, but that had in it not just a letter from me that I'd written in and they'd published, but also uh, a cover from my standard grade physics project that I designed in Microdesign 3 and sent in and they put in the Reader's Gallery. But not just that, I also discovered I had written a manual um, for a particularly uh, esoteric piece of hardware and I had like, got this thing, I'd, I'd designed it, I'd got this thing photocopied up, I'd put like coloured cover, card covers on it and I was selling it through the pages of PCW+. My first foray into magazine publishing. Most people could tell a cool story about a zine they wrote about a band. Me, I wrote a guide to ProLink Plus for the Amstrad NC100. Well, I mean, that's very impressive. Would you say that there was um, less competition going into that than <laughs> perhaps all of you? the many people who wanted to join the NME? <laughs> Conceivably so. You might very well think that. So would you say then that your route into uh, magazines and journalism came through tech? Yes, definitely. I mean, I, I did a degree in graphic design here in Dundee, in fact, although I'm not nat- native to the city. Uh, and in the summer after I graduated, I was just kind of bumming around at home and I read uh, Mac User at the time. Um, and I saw that they were advertising in their own classified section for a labs manager. So it wasn't even ed- an editorial position, really. It was an admin job, in effect, of like, you know, doing some testing, making sure that the, the labs, which is where all the kit that Mac User tested, was tested and make sure those labs were kept in good Nick and setting some best practice, I guess, but it was kind of a skivvy job, um, and I, I'd never, I'd never had an avowed uh, passion for magazine publishing. I'd never seen that as a career goal. Just sort of fell into it, but that was in nineteen, sorry, two thousand and two, and we're here in twenty twenty, and it's I've been in magazine, I've been in publishing ever since. Yes, indeed, indeed, and 
I mean, was that a difficult place to get a start, you know, to, to get into the industry? No, I was, uh, like, it sounds quite uh, conceited and um, blasé, but I, I did fall into it. So, uh, you know, you might be listening to this thinking, what a, a, a selfish and a conceited, uh, bombshell person this is. But I did, because I, I hadn't sort of always had my goal in getting into magazine publishing, I, I, I did just, it was, I think it might even have been the first job I applied for. Wow, um, that's pretty I, I good. Got, so, so I was incredibly uh, lucky to, to get that start. And I went from being um, labs manager to uh, Mac user in those days was still fortnightly and they decided they would do a cover mounted CD. So I became the CD editor of Mac user and then features ed. Uh, and then I left to be dep head of Mac format, the future in Bath. And, and, and uh, you know, at no point was there any kind of game plan. And I think that's quite good to know. <laughs> I think it's really easy to look at a lot of people, a lot of successful people in positions as senior as mine in an organisation. I think there must have been a very direct route to it. But, you know, I took a very circuitous route to the, route, the position I'm in now. No, and I think that's absolutely what the aim of magazine stories is, is to talk about the fact it's not always a straight path. Uh, and it's about, well, maybe you'll tell me if I'm correct in this. For you, was it about taking the opportunities when they arose? Absolutely. I mean, I think I, it's almost trite to say, I believe in luck, but you make your own luck. Uh, but it's definitely a, a, a mantra that I have a lot of time for. I, I think if you don't acknowledge the role that luck plays in your in your life and career, you're a, a very sort of first world conceited person. Everyone has breaks. The, the opportunity, but I think you've got to, as much as you can, manoeuvre yourself to a place where that luck can come your way. And, and, and you know, it, it's even conversations like this, Laura, you know, your, your business development for uh, PPA, this is part of my professional career development, talking to you right here, right now. And it's because people will listen to this who've never heard of me. And that, that raises my profile. And it's, it's you know, having the, having the, the sort of nice to position yourself in places where good stuff can happen. I think is a really valuable skill and it's one that even can suit introverts because mm. you don't need to be doing networking in the traditional sense of going out and you know going to parties and standing around awkwardly with a glass of lukewarm white wine you can do it by making good stuff and by just putting yourself and your things out there one of the pieces of advice I often give to uh, young people who want to get into publishing is just just start doing it just absolutely start doing it there's never been a better time to start a Insta channel or start a zine or start some a podcast. <laughs> Why should I not mention podcasts? And um, because you know you, you can begin to create it, and a that just gives you a bit, of, you know, hones your chops a little bit. But also, if you come to me looking for a job, and you have demonstrated that you've got the get up and go to get out and do stuff, not only will I think, oh, that's really cool, I'll go and look at that thing, but also I'll think. I, they, they will have learned so much from that experience of doing that. They'll have learned that you you know you can't just oh how shall I make this website pay for itself? Oh I'll just put on Google Ads. You can't do that unless you've got massive scale. And these little lessons make a huge difference. I think absolutely. So you find yourself at this point. Uh, um, we've got to you being an editor. I'm always really interested in people who have been editors. What they think are the essential qualities for being a good editor? Oh. God, I think there are so many different kinds of good editors. You can have, um, you know, uh, um, campaigning, striding ahead, agenda setting editors, and somebody like Terry White is is astonishing at that. You can have 
um, editors who are essentially invisible. They're not really, a, they don't sort of live their brand, but they are very good at, you know, the mechanics of putting out good titles and who are very good at um, managing their team as well. But you can have also editors who, and actually this is probably the kind of editor I was, and it's it's the worst kind of editor, who are effectively just really good writers, who are super writers and who kind of find themselves in a position where they are an editor. And actually, the job of an editor is not to write. <laughs> I mean, quite specifically, it's not to write. But I think you find a lot of editors hit that position and they're, they, 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 what they are very good at is communicating ideas through the written word and, and shaping a narrative around stuff. But actually, it may be that they're not particularly good people managers and I wasn't a particularly good people manager as an editor. It might be that you don't quite have the 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 uh the vision to stride ahead of where you want your team to come to with you and it can be it can be difficult i think and and, but there are all different kinds i think and i think there's no one size fits all i think uh both I, i think as well as it takes all sorts to make a world and let's not get too hung up on the perfect idea of an editor i also think different situations will call for different types of people if you look at something like the big issue that needs very big strong leadership that will pull that magazine forward because it's got a mission but if you look at this england for example one of our titles it doesn't need that it needs quiet calm contemplative friendliness to its leadership absolutely so the right uh, the right tool for the job yeah for sure <laughs> the idea. For you, though, would, would you say that there's anything big that you learned doing that? Or there are any big mistakes that you made? Yeah, I, I'll come back. I'll absolutely hold my hands up to the fact that I wasn't a particularly good people manager. I And, and that comes from, you know, where you are as a person. I think uh, I wouldn't even claim now that I'd be a particularly good people manager, even though I'm... It's really hard, I think. It's <laughs> there's the idea of the loneliness of command, right? Isn't there that people at the at the top of an organization, the editor's not at the top, but they're kind of at the top of their little unit. Um, they don't have anybody they can uh, engage with, share with. So you are a little bit on your own, which is true. But by the same token, it's too easy, I think, to be self-indulgent and think um, the people around you are not doing a particularly good job or that... If only they, they, they just cared as much as you did, things would all be better. But if you yourself are not in a pretty good place mentally or wherever you are in your life, you're always going to... Um, uh, that's going to trickle into your managerial style. And I think it's too easy just to think, oh, well, it's quite a tough job. Actually, you know, if if a lot of the dysfunctional... <laughs> dysfunctional is a strong word. <laughs> a lot of the editors who perhaps aren't bringing their team along with them as well as they could do actually probably should look a bit inwards and try and get themselves a bit happier first and then be able to bring their team along with them as well. That's excellent advice. So you've been at both Dennis and Future working on a range of tech publications um, and then after that you've gone freelance in about what, 2014, Something isn't that like right? That. Um how did you find that change? Because it is a big change going from being staff to being a freelancer. It is a big change. I, you know, to be completely candid, it wasn't a, it wasn't a, a move I made positively. I was just sick of it and I wanted to stop. <laughs> and there was no particular um, 
catastrophic event that precipitated the change. But I remember one morning just sitting at my desk and going, you know what, I just, I just don't have to do this anymore. I'm just going to stop. So I drafted an email of resignation. My wife happened to work at the company as well. And there was problems with the printers. So I remember taking a photograph of this email on my screen, walking around to Jenny and showing her this and going, are you okay with this? And she was like, yes, that's the best thing you can possibly do. Please just send that. Sent that. Um, a little bit of wrangling later, I went freelance. And I only went freelance, as so many people in, in this industry and other creative industries do, as a way of paying some bills and getting some money coming in over uh, while I looked for another job. Um, it turned out I actually quite enjoyed it. And it's given me an amazing... You know, I'm really fortunate to have had that experience because it has given me a, a real self-confidence boost. So in the first year, and I also think it's quite important to talk about these things in quite candid terms. In the, in the, first sort of, in the only sort of full year that I was freelance, I generated about 30 grand of uh, income. Which is definitely not bad. Which is not bad it. at all. I, 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 so 30 grand, you know, that, that's not an absolutely immense amount of money. That was still quite a tight amount of money to, to live on in Bath, of all places, a very expensive city to live in. But I did it, and it's, it, it gives me the confidence now that I know that I, I have been able to generate out of thin air, out of my brain, out of my creativity. I don't have to make something, I don't have to buy in raw materials. I can just magic up value out of my writing and consultancy. Um, and that's given me a, a, a confidence because, it, you know, if everything goes pear-shaped, I can do that again. And actually, I was, e even though I'm um, constitutionally not well-suited to not having a regular paycheck coming in every month, and the cash flow thing is hell for all freelancers, I actually find I was quite enjoying it. And I was enjoying the, the, the freedom. Once you... You, if you listen to other freelancers and do the things they say you should do, i.e. things like, you know, you don't have to work nine to five. If you want to just go out and have a walk and then you'll do that work at nine o'clock that night, if that works for you, then do that. You, one of the advantages of being freelancers is you have that flexibility. I was quite enjoying it. But as it happened, um, DC Thompson then came knocking, asked me to come up to as a publisher for one of the titles here. Um, and that then took me back into the world of employment. It coincided, and again, I think it's quite important to talk about these things candidly because that can sound like, again, a sort of career move. Actually, it was as much a, uh, a personal thing because my wife and I just had our first child. She was about six months old. We wanted to move back to Scotland to be near our families anyway. And so, and so, you know, if you look at my LinkedIn profile, you see it goes from editor-in-chief to freelance to head of Scottish Wedding Directory. And that looks like, there's some thought behind that, but actually there are lots of other forces at play. And I think it's really important, especially for people new to the industry, to, to, to recognise that, that, you know, we are whole 360 human beings and there's lots of different things affect how we decide what to do with our lives. I mean, you're absolutely right. It does look like career progression and there's a definite story that you can tell about that. But it might otherwise be quite surprising to go from tech to a wedding title that's yes. that's more that's the more surprising element of it rather than the job titles yes so tell me a bit about how that change was for you the wedding industry in particular is a very odd industry and while there are some sort of surface similarities to uh, some others it's a very um uh, personality driven relationship driven uh, very demanding industry uh, the one thing I will say, I guess, is that as um, publisher, um, you can make an. I, I remember I seen Paul Newman at Future saying to me 
a few years ago when they were moving some staff around and, and, and talking to me about some various things, you know, an editor doesn't have to be a subject expert. And I pushed back at that at the time. And I, I, can't, I still can't decide whether or not I, I think that's right or not. Because on the one hand, Paul, Paul's point was, you know, the job of an editor can be a, 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 an administrative one, a team development one, a public speaking one. You don't, you know, if the, the editor of Farming Monthly, you don't have to be a farmer. And that's true, but the flip is also true as well. The title that Paul had been talking to me about at the time was something I had no interest in. And I sort of thought, I don't know how much you can phone that in i think you need some kind of sense of passion about about stuff but i think once you ascend to the giddy heights of a publisher you are just a business person at that point and you you know you have an editor and a sales director below you uh, in the org chart and i think you you know it was an interesting career progression for me to to try to think about okay i really mustn't try to set editorial policy here that's done in, in in conversation with my editor i mustn't try to set commercial policy here that's done in discussion with my sales director and so that was a you know an interesting thing and, and it was you know good experience from that kind of business you know, spreadsheets and emails kind of business business focus of, of running a magazine and while you were there um you did quite a lot to change the the atmosphere of the place from being quite print centric to bringing in a lot more digital events, social, all the rest of it. So I wonder what, what was it like for you to change that culture? Was that, um, was that something that you felt that was easy to bring people along with you? Well, the, the team that I inherited had been acquired by DC Thompson a few years, maybe three or four or five years before. And it was a quite a tightly knit team and the the strength of personalities of the independent people who had had it beforehand with no other magazine experience they just started this magazine in 1995 um it it was a very strong internal structure and even when it was integrated into dt thompson i think uh, they had a very strong identity uh, in and of themselves so i you know i would be lying if I said that cultural shift was easily achieved but i will say that um, over the three or so years that I was in that role, we absolutely, you know, we, we had started doing the handbrake turn in the super tanker. We had started to shift not just the, as you say, the commercial proposition, um, making it much less um, print centric and more focused on a, a much more diversified revenue base, but also changing the, the culture internally as well. And as always with these things, there are some people who are much more open and some people people who have got a much more conservative view. But you just have to find those people who are who you've got to believe in the vision you have for it and you know have that stress tested by people challenging you and having those conversations. But once you are confident of that direction you want the team to move in, finding those people who are going to help you you know, to torture analogy, who are going to hang on to that ship's wheel with you and drag it um, into a new direction. And that, that you know, it was, a, it was a genuinely really exciting time as as we we, we, we worked out how we could um, disintermediate a lot of the old ways of selling this title and focus it much more on, on, on packages of stuff. So my major innovation, if you like, was to completely break the rate card down into its component parts so there was nothing it wasn't you you bought a print ad and you got an online ad for free it was everything had a dollar value against it 
and then working how we could package those up into ways that made sense for people so that we could have a much more grown-up conversation with a client, much more consultative conversation with a potential advertising client to say, what are the challenges you face? Okay, so I think from the, the smorgasbord of uh, commercial of audience touch points we have here's what i think will work for you and we had a range of sort of preset a la carte packages sorry pre, not preset a la carte that's exactly the, those two words are in opposition we had a range of preset packages that challenge that that attract that answered the problems of particular parts of the industry in particular ways but you could go completely a la carte you could just you know do something bespoke and did some nifty little things with them um, spreadsheets to be able to build some package builders that the sales team could use to develop those quite quickly and that saw some really really positive results from the industry which was really encouraging so in your view should more magazines be looking to extend their brands in the way that you did um at scottish wedding directory i mean i think that's a no-brainer really isn't it? i don't think i think anybody would, I don't think anybody would answer that question with anything other than an emphatic yes uh, there are exceptions if you look at private eye always a great example of a of a title which has doubled down on its absolute core proposition and has made a super sore away success of it. Private Eye is an astonishing thing. The ABC rises the report every session, every time the ABC comes out are enviable. Um, and so there are exceptions, but I think for, for most of us, especially in a generalist uh, newsstand context in magazines, you have to be thinking about how you diversify and, 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 how you can best use the resource you have and how you need to bring in new resource and redeploy resource you have and that sort of stuff. So speaking of diversifying, uh, most recently you've been focusing on one particular form of brand extension as a head of podcasts for DC Thompson, which is a very new and a little bit unusual title. And first of all, it's probably useful for you just to tell us what that actually means. Well, so I'm charged with um, basically developing a podcast strategy within DC Thompson. So I'm, you know, my role is kind of twofold. The main, if you look at the job title head of podcast, that's mostly a kind of strategic and uh, long thinking uh, job title where I'm trying to uh, work with key stakeholders and work out what the best approaches are. And, and you know, there's so much stuff up for, for such a simple thing, a podcast. There's a lot of different ways you can monetize or think about or uh, uh, otherwise engage with a podcast as part of a publishing mix of strategy but then the other part of my job is as effectively an executive producer you know we have nine podcasts uh, now um, and working out how I can record them setting best practice for audio engineering and editing and that sort of stuff and then some you know really nitty-gritty logistical concerns like we have two of our podcasts three of our podcasts are produced out of uh, Aceville one of the companies we acquired uh, recently based down in Colchester so working out how I can uh, empower them to produce much more hands-off from me we one of our uh, sport podcasts is now produced it's only four episodes old as we record this uh, is produced in our uh, Marshall Square offices in Aberdeen where we are also fortunate enough to have a radio studio so we can use the, the expertise and resource there. So a lot of it's kind of this mix of the sort of highfalutin and grand strategic stuff and then the really, why do we choose 256 kilobits per second over 192 kilobits per second kind of conversations around just getting the best balance we can and, and talking about kit and workflows and resource sharing. But one of the really cool things is Something like podcasts, especially because, you know, I've got the backing of our chief exec, Mike Watson, 
one of the really cool things about podcasts is that I, I've got a, a really cool brief to, to, to work with different bits of companies and bring things together in really interesting and dynamic ways. So that Northern Goal football podcast, for example, is a really good example. So that's our uh, Press and Journal and Evening Express newspapers working with resource and expertise from our original 106 FM radio teams. Uh, we produced the Stushy Political Podcast, which is using journalists right across all of our daily newspaper portfolio and bringing them together, some of them in the office, some of them joining us over uh, VoIP calls um, from Holyrood, from uh, Westminster. And, you know, a lot of it's it's so fun just to be able to work with such a brilliant gang of really excited people and really do do really good stuff. And it's interesting because, you know, for the first couple of months of, of doing this job, um, which was about a year ago now as we record this, uh, you, as you might expect, trying to get buy-in and getting people excited about the project when it was very unproven was was rightly um, difficult. But now people are just super excited. I've got, I've got, let me count, five shows in development just now. Um, and that's the ones that we've agreed to develop. There's loads more people just going, can we do this, can we do this? Can I talk to you on Friday about this? And seeing... I was just thinking about today. So just before we recorded, I was recording one of our football podcasts from The Courier and the team there have just sunk into it so nicely. And it's so kind of personally rewarding to see uh, uh, people in an organisation like this developing new skill sets and getting comfortable with it and having fun. It's it, All the teams I work with, I think they really love doing the podcast bit because it's, it's a bit different you know, different skill sets and different um, uh, criteria for success, if you, if you like. And they, they love it and it's, it's joyous. You've talked a bit about how fun it is for the staff, which is obviously a really good goal in and of itself and keeping people happy within your organisation is a, is a good thing. But how would you say that podcasts fit into the wider company strategy? So as you say, it's very much part... Well, diversification is definitely you know, a, a key driving force of it. But also, you know, DC Thompson Media has four mission statements, if you like, four sort of pillars of what we're trying to do. And one of them is embrace the future. One of them is collaborate openly. And I think podcasts fit 100% into into those kind of rubrics because we're, we, you know, here's what it comes down to. It's really simple. Where are your audiences? That's all that matters these in publishing always it's all that has ever mattered in publishing but especially these days when uh, the media landscape is so diverse and people have got so many options in front of them for how they spend their times and their media consumption habits are shifting so much and so you know ask the question where are your audiences increasingly 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 with you know multi tens of percents of increases year on year we're seeing them spending time in podcasts and you know why because they're great because they fit into parts of your life that are otherwise dreadful you know it's your hours commute every day it's uh doing the dishes it's exercising these are not fun things um but podcasts can make them fun right so 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 all of a sudden rather than oh, i'm gonna get on the train it's oh great, I get to listen to an episode of my favourite podcast that I saw appear on my phone this morning. 
Absolutely. So we're back to those habits again. Yeah, so it's absolutely. about building a different set of habits, but that they still link to your magazines, to your your other brands as well. And yeah. That sense of trust. I mean, I think that's true. I think the very obvious first step for any publisher in adopting a podcast strategy is to work out how you can extend existing brands into it. However, I'll also say I wanted to, I, I never want people to think that's the only thing you can do. You can also create properties which are either untethered from a specific brand, as in the case of the Stushi or Politics podcast, that is aligned to four different newspapers and no one brand owns that podcast. Or, you know, create entirely new uh, streams entirely new properties that that are not attached to any existing brand but that perhaps fit into a broader strategy a lot of people will look at this and think it seems unachievable or think that we'll worry about the, both the time and other sorts of resource that might be involved in making a podcast for people perhaps in smaller organizations what would be your advice well, my first bit of advice would be to go and listen to the episode of Media Voices podcast recorded at Magfest this year, where that Excellent very <laughs> where that very point was made, and and Esther and the Media Voices team and I made exactly the same point, which is I get it, I get it, I get it. Obviously, 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 we're all resource constrained, and anything extra you do takes you away from the thing you're supposed to be doing to earn you money uh, as your core business. Podcasting is the least resource intensive process I can think of really if you do if you do it well that sounds terrible that sounds quite gatekeepy and and snobby but but if you if you're smart about it that's a better way of saying it you can um construct a podcast strategy that is very low touch that requires very little input so so uh, immediately after we finish this recording i'll be recording with one, another one of our football teams that can be up within 10 minutes of them finishing because of the templates i have built in addition because of the preset effects racks that are there to clean up the audio because of the fact that the boys are really good and they're slick and so it's with a very very few exceptions it's usually just a case of topping and tailing that podcast and sticking the music that's in the template and stuff together it can it can be very very low touch it can also of course be highly produced and there are some things that we're working on that that will be a much heavier logistical load in terms of delivery and and, and production but but it can be very very simple and I think, you know, the point I made in that Media Voices podcast as well was it. it I'm, another phrase I'm very fond of is the perfect is the enemy of the good. If if you if you if you ha hamstring yourself by trying to produce something that is BBC Radio Four quality, with all that that entails, you'll just never do it, and it will seem very expensive and very uh, heavy to produce. And that's the, the the easiest reason to can it. Right. If it's going to take you a long time or it's going to be very labor intensive, you're just going to go, do you know what? We're rationalizing. We're going to have to cut that. But if you can make it quick and easy and snappy and deliverable, then why not do it? Because podcasts are an incredibly intimate medium. If you're listening to this on headphones, as most people do, the sound of my voice is emanating from the center of your skull. I literally cannot get closer to you as a media producer than that. And, and and so you, you can you know, build these incredibly close relationships with an audience, pull core audience really tightly to your bosom, but find new audiences. You know, we're, we're talking about the podcasts, uh, talking about podcasts as something that skew to a younger demographic. So especially if you're a, a print title, almost certainly your readership skews to the 40, 50, 60 demographic. Podcasts are usually, cons uh, mostly consumed by the sort of 20, 30 demographic. Um, 
Again, we see this nice gender mixing in there. We can get this demographic data through Spotify and be able to do all that for the sake of half an hour a week sitting down chatting about stuff. Like, why not? It does seem like good value. It does. And aside from your your own, what are some of your current favourites, magazine-related or or publisher podcasts? I guess the one that, that I'm always excited to see popping up in my feed is The Week Unwrapped. Um, so the week, obviously, you know, the week is fetishized by the magazine industry and rightly so, uh, not just because it's an excellent, excellent product, uh, but also because it you know, it does well. It's a little bit analogous to Private Eye. It focuses on a very core thing, does it very well. Actually, that's not true. They, they, they are diversified as well. But um, the week is brilliant. The week unwrapped is a brilliant adjunct to the week. So the, the point of the week unwrapped is they have an external host come in, Oli Man, who's a very experienced podcaster, and he will take the team through three stories. But they have to be underreported stories. But they have to be underreported stories that have got a wider resonance. So at one and the same time, they're managing to do niche, interesting, cool, offbeat stuff. But Ollie will always challenge the team to go, well, why does it matter? Why should we care? Why does it matter to, to me, to us, to everyone listening kind of thing? And it's an incredibly um, powerful adjunct to uh, The Week magazine because The Week magazine is is about the big stories. I mean, they put some other stuff in there as well, but it is about your weekly digest of what's happening in the world. And so to, and this is what's, you know, as a listener, I just it's an entertaining and, and exciting show to listen to. But as, a, as somebody in podcasting, I think it's such a masterstroke of how to, extend your brand but not just slavishly replicate your brand right because they could have just done so what's happening in Yemen what's happening in China you know you could have done all the headline stories but to to come at it from a slightly oblique angle is 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 brilliant because it 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 rounds out their proposition it gives them other ways of doing things and it understands that a podcast audience is a little bit different to a print audience or an online audience it is an audience which is uh, which has got more time on their hands uh, or rather, will almost certainly. Um, there's different ways of measuring it, but a podcast audience will almost certainly spend much, much, much more time with your brand than they would otherwise spend with a print or an online uh, reification of that brand. And so, and but they, they they like informality, they like personality, they like nuance, and they've you've got the time to to really take a run at that. Whereas you can't really do that in print because you are so space constrained. But they can do it in podcasting. And to see how they've managed to blend those two things together, I think, is just astonishing. Wow. I shall uh, definitely go and check it out. That'll be your train ride home. <laughs> That's my train ride home. It's now become a, a delight to me, as you quite rightly say, because that true. is the, the joy of podcasts. Um, so looking at your career so far, kind of if you take the long view of it, um, accepting the fact that we have we have discussed that it's not necessarily planned in that way. No. but. Just because something isn't planned doesn't mean that we can't learn something from it. So what would you say are your your biggest lessons looking back? It's such a wishy-washy liberal thing to say, but it's concentrate on people. And, and I mean yourself as well. And I think understa- being, uh, being self-aware and sort of understanding when if you're an arsehole, it's not necessarily, it, it's because you might be unhappy. And if people around you are being arseholes, it's because they might be being unhappy. And it's and so obviously this is not a particularly useful practical piece of advice because it's it's not real it's not particular to the magazine industry. But I think 
if I look at the stuff that I've regretted about what's happened in my career, it's always been about me uh, not taking time for myself and taking care of myself or not taking time for my team and being there for them and, uh, and, and listening better and, and trying to provide that very unfashionable phrase, pastoral care as much as, you know, writing good copy. Cause actually there's lots and lots of people who can write good copy, but being able to lift everyone up, bring everyone along with you and, and be a good team member as well as a good team leader i think that's actually a much rarer talent and i certainly haven't always been good at it so i think to, i guess it boils down to go to therapy <laughs> my advice is go to that you know you don't have to actually go to a therapist's office but 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 sort yourself out as much as you can and that's not said from a position of somebody who has sorted himself out that's said from somebody who's a continuing screw-up in many ways but but that sense of uh, getting yourself right as much as you can and and making it all fun and making it all worthwhile and doing good work as part of that, I think, is, is key. As promised, we caught up with Chris again last week to find out how he's coping with podcasting during the lockdown. So uh, hello again, Chris, and thank you very much for rejoining us on Magazine Stories. Um, a lot has changed since we last yes. spoke. Um not least that we're all working from home and now these recordings have to be done online. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how, first of all, the coronavirus crisis has changed how you're working? So the, the, the good thing that hasn't changed is that we haven't missed a beat on any of our podcasts. We're continuing to produce the eight shows that we do and there's more in development um, as we speak. Um, so that's a good thing. And I'm very proud of that. I'm proud of the fact that the teams are making time to do it and that we've managed to adapt our workflows to, to, to cope with that. The biggest change is that obviously everyone's at home. Um, so we are running these recording sessions over um, a web-based solution. And it happens to be the same one that you're using here, Zencaster. There are lots like it. There's Squadcast. People use Discord servers and the Craig bot and stuff. But all it means is that um, it's a virtual studio. People join from their own uh, PC or Mac, wherever they are. And with whatever mic they've got, and my God, am I dealing with a lot of different microphones these days? Um, and then we record, and it records on their own PC. It sends the files to me, and it's it's all um, assembled in a, a editing document to go from there. It, the, the 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 worst bit is that it's the edits take significantly longer. Mm. So in the past, where especially for some of our football podcasts, I might be used to you know pressing the button to stop the recording, and then ten minutes, quarter of an hour later, it goes live. Because in this case, I'm having to, well, for one thing, um, adjust the quality of the, the audio, the raw audio itself, um, because we're dealing with these different microphones, um, but also because uh, we're having to you know, improve the conversational flow. You know, just like if you're on a, a Skype call with or a Zoom call with multiple people, there's a lot of crosstalk and, oh, no, sorry, you go. Um, so there's a lot of you know, finicky editing that takes place to make sure these things sound as uh, naturalistic as possible and so that we're not sort of lifting the curtain too much like you know i've got this phrase authentic but not amateur i think if we have too much of that nonsense in the mix it just gets it gets in the way between um how the the punter's enjoyment and and what they're actually trying to get uh, out of the podcast itself one last thing is we did a few weeks ago order a couple of dozen microphones to go to all of our different remote podcasting teams 
um, and some of them haven't even arrived. Um, so we ordered a whole bunch of Samsung Q2Us, which are really nice microphones. They're not wildly expensive. They're a really good sweet spot. So that's really good. But but the problem was that everyone had the same idea. <laughs> and so about a third of the microphones that we ordered arrived and the rest of them won't be here until mid-May because there is a worldwide podcasting pandemic as well as a coronavirus pandemic. And we're getting a lot of people sitting at home and um, starting podcasts and getting hold of these microphones quite tricky. So we've, we're dealing with a lot of um, you know laptop mics or uh, yeah, um, sort of hands-free headset mics mm. on people's phones. Um, I am draping several of my team in duvets to create impromptu sound uh, booths. And if the visual of a whole bunch of journalists up and down the country sitting in their kitchens draped in Disney character duvets doesn't cheer you up on this day, I don't know what will. It certainly does. You've mentioned that you think there's a bit of a... Um an increase, shall we say, of um, of podcasters. Do you think there's also the kind of um, the that number of podcast listeners coming in as no, well? No, I don't. Well, so for every person who suddenly has a lot of time on their hands, and may I say, I am uh, deeply envious of anyone who's finding this, uh, whose main challenge in this is is boredom. Um, but anyone who does have time on their hands, but for every one of those, there's you know five, six, ten people who suddenly don't have a daily commute anymore. Um, and so their podcast, certainly my own podcast consumption habits are through the floor. And I saw some um, some figures out from Overcast, which one of the one of the podcast players just today, as we record, saying that they'd seen a drop of about I think it was fifteen or twenty percent in weekday listening. The weekend listening numbers are about the same; they haven't really changed, but weekday listening has gone down. Now that's just a subset of the figures, but it's a decent enough footprint of a podcast player that that wouldn't surprise me as being the overall number um, that would reflect across the rest of the industry so consumption is definitely down consumption patterns have changed dramatically so where we might see people um, downloading a podcast primarily on the day it comes out we're seeing that sort of shifting around a little bit as people's just you know they, they don't have the same um, opportunities in their day I mean I know that you are still getting out on your daily run and that's given because that's your chance for listening to podcasts yeah that's when i listen <laughs> um but a lot for a lot of people it is the commute that's something for me my four mile cycle in and to work and back um each way that's when i listen and if i'm not doing it I'm, I'm just not listening and so what what would you say i mean what's um i guess what's your advice for people at this time so my advice if you are a podcaster or a, a business a publisher thinking about starting a podcast is do what you would be doing or otherwise. I saw a great comment from uh, my friend Kim Plowright the other day. She'd retweeted something talking about the fact that uh, she's seen a lot of um, museums and art organizations suddenly spinning up vast online sort of e-learning or e-inspiration, if you like, programs uh, as the coronavirus lockdown has bit and you know everyone's seeing this we're seeing huge institutions putting things online and learning activities and um, you know kids activity packs and a whole bunch of that but the point that Kim made was if you weren't doing that before why are you doing it now and if you're only doing it now why weren't you doing it before because this is this has always been relevant always been true about how you can engage your audiences um, in an online space and so the point I think is well taken for podcasting if you're already producing a podcast then within reason um uh continue to do so and i think if your audio quality drops a little bit your audience will will, will stay with you excellent well thank you so much for rejoining us again chris and i very much hope to see you in person yes. again soon there will be hugs thank you for joining us for this first edition of ppi scotland's magazine stories 
If you've enjoyed it, please do subscribe to hear more. Next week, we'll be talking to Mandy Rhodes, who's the editor of political magazine Hollywood and the managing director of Hollywood Communications. I've been Laura Kelly Dunlop, and this has been PPA Scotland's Magazine Stories.